Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Numbers. Today, returning to our studies, Numbers chapter 31, we will read the entirety of the chapter, 54 verses. I'll begin in verse 1. Uh, just a brief note uh, to thank you all for your prayers and encouragement. It was sad not to be with you. Uh, I was sad not to be with you last week, um, but I was really thankful for Steve Barry being able to jump in on short notice and preach God's Word in my stead, uh, and thankful for his uh, faithful ministry. We're returning today to Numbers chapter 31, and you may recall, if you've been with us for a while, that through our studies in Numbers, uh, there have been what some would call high points and low points. There have been very joyful chapters, there have been very difficult chapters, and today uh, leans more in the difficult direction. You'll see that as we read in some of the subject matter that we have before us. Uh, but there is, uh, nevertheless, a note of mercy here as well, and so we're going to read Numbers chapter 31. Before we do, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Well, gracious Lord our God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight, that we may not only see the history of your dealing with your people and your dealing with the nations, but that we may apply this to our own lives as well, to see the reality of your judgment. And look also to the promise of purity in the Lord Jesus Christ, the way that you cleanse and draw near people who do not deserve to be drawn near to you. And we thank you for your mercy in Christ and pray that you would help us to see that today, even as we read. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We well, hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 31. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go to, against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided, out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe. 12,000 armed for war, and Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zor, Hor, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones. And they took his plunder, all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the places where they lived and all their encampments they burned with fire. And took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel. At the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp, and Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of the hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord." Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. 
But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves and camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with the water for impurity. And whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water. You must wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. The Lord said to Moses, Take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast, you and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the fathers' houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts, between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. And levy for the Lord a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of five hundred, of the people and of the oxen, of the donkeys and of the flocks. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to the Lord. And from the people of Israel's half you shall take one drawn out of every fifty, of the people, of the oxen, of the donkeys, and of the flocks, and of all the cattle, and give them to the Levites who keep guard over the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now the plunder remaining of the spoil that the army took was 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, women who had not known man by lying with him. And the half, the portion of those who had gone out in the army numbered 337,500 sheep, and the Lord's tribute of sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 30,500, of which the Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. And Moses gave the tribute, which was the contribution for the Lord, to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. From the people of Israel's half, which Moses separated from that of the men who had served in the army, now the congregation's half was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. From the people of Israel's half, Moses took one out of every 50, both of persons and of beasts, and gave them to the Levites who kept guard over the tabernacle of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, came near to Moses and said to Moses, Your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. And we have brought the Lord's offering. What each man found, articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signet rings, earrings and beads, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest received from them the gold, all crafted articles, and all the gold of the contribution that they presented to the Lord from the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men in the army had each taken plunder for himself, and Moses and Eleazar the priests received the gold from the commanders of the thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word may add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, from uh, the Count of Monte Cristo all the way down to the Wrath of Khan, 
everybody knows that revenge is a dish that is best served cold. At least that's the, the common misconception. Uh, it, it's that internal whisper we have sometimes that tells us how satisfying it probably would feel to take those who have harmed us and see them get what's coming to them, all the better if we can wait until they least expect it, perhaps. And so that idea, that whisper, filters down into our collective subconscious, subconscious and we, we sit through five acts of Shakespeare just to see how Hamlet's oath of vengeance is going to play out. We wade through 1,200 pages of Melville just to see if Ahab gets the whale. We love a good revenge story. And if you're too sanctified for fiction, you can find the same themes in the pages of your Bible. It's the account of Levi and Simeon luring the Shechemites into a treaty of peace, but just to spring at the last moment an exact revenge for the sister that they had assaulted. You can find it in other places. You can find Absalom slaying Amnon. You can find the Pharisees and the priests and the Jewish authorities plotting how to get rid of this upstart prophet who has captured the heart of the people of Jerusalem. Shakespeare did not invent the revenge story. It is as old as our self-justifying sin. And when others have harmed us, we want to do at least as much damage to them in return. And we imagine that it will feel good if we do so. Well, the Lord, of course, knows how alluring that pull toward revenge is. How comforting it is to our, our thoughts sometimes, which is why he warns us, not once, but twice in Scripture. It shows up in Deuteronomy. It shows up again in Romans. Twice he warns us that vengeance belongs to him and not to us. Twice he tells us not to take matters into our own hands, but to trust in his perfect judgment. Well, in Numbers chapter 31 today, we encounter a passage that shows us what that perfect judgment looks like, at least in a small measure. That's what we find in this chapter. Read again verses 1 through 3 with me. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You hear the same language, but it's moving in two different directions. The Lord says the people are going to avenge themselves. Moses says the people are going to avenge the Lord. It's an indication that this is not just another revenge story. This is not a personal vendetta. This is about the justice and the judgment of God. As the people of Israel in this chapter take up arms against the Midianites, they are becoming the instruments of executing God's judgment. They are the sword and the spear of the Lord against a nation of sinners, against iniquity of human sin. And depending on how you read this chapter, that is either the most obvious thing here or it's the most offensive thing here. One pastor that I encountered wisely, I think, said that, that this sort of detail, this judgment of God, if you're, if you're at all familiar with the scriptures, if you grew up in a home where these things were taught, well, this just sort of becomes part of the scenery. It's the sort of thing that you expect. You already know the plot line. The people come out of slavery in Egypt. They wander through the wilderness. They come into the promised land. And when they come into the promised land, they clean the place. 
of all the pagan nations that are around them. So men and women and children too are all devoted to destruction as an act of God's judgment. And you see it and you read it and you've read it before and you say, yes, of course, there it is. Most obvious thing. That's what happened, of course. It's just a part of the scenery. On the other hand, this is precisely the kind of passage that many people stumble over when they very first begin reading the scriptures for themselves, even if they grew up in a household where these things were read around the dinner table. After all, we say, isn't this the kind of thing that we find most reprehensible about the other religions in the world? Are there not bands of people out there that we would call extremists? We would label them not just religious, but religious militants. And aren't they out there trying to cleanse the world of evil by eradicating those that their leaders have called infidels? It sounds extreme. And and when people come to the Bible hoping to hear about the God of love, they begin reading and they pick up in Genesis and here they go and now they're in Numbers. And now they're stumbling all over the fact that Numbers seems to make the Bible just as extreme as those other things that we've encountered. And so we have this knee-jerk reaction to to push against what we see here. I think against that knee-jerk reaction, we need to begin today by acknowledging that this passage presents to us exactly what it seems like this passage is presenting on the very surface. That is, this chapter reveals to us that the God of the universe is personally involved for judgment and justice in the world that he created. He is the God who enters into judgment with the sin that proceeds from the heart of man. The God of righteousness is not alone in some clandestine cloud somewhere far off while the sin of man just doubles and redoubles. It runs amok without any intervention. God is not aloof and he's not uninterested and uninvolved. No, the God of the Bible sees And he marks the sins of those who thumb their noses in his direction. The God of the Bible takes notice of every abuse leveled against the people that he's chosen for himself. The God of the Bible promises that one day he's going to come to set the record straight once and for all. And he will punish sin and sinners for their hard-hearted Rebellion and the scriptures of the Old and New Testament affirm these truths with full throated yell. These things come from God the Father and from Christ the Son, these truths that we're talking about, God's judgment. This chapter is merely one instance among many instances where the divine judgment of God entered into human time and space as a sign of other things that are yet to come. It's merely one small glimpse among many glimpses showing us the judgment that will one day fall from God's throne upon the sins of humanity. I realize that those who are offended by these sorts of things might not like the argument. Some might say that the position is not nuanced enough. Some might say that it's not winsome enough might say that it's not the kind of message that will gather in seekers and and unbelievers by the scores waiting to be converted to our form of Christianity if this is what we're going to preach and what we're going to believe. Nevertheless, we need to read the Bible on its own terms, not on terms that we've invented for it. That means that beginning by acknowledging that this passage is exactly what it looks like. 
It is the judgment of God falling upon a nation of sinners. Pagans and pleasure worshipers who have rejected him and his lordship. People especially who have attempted to get God's own chosen people to turn away from him, to turn their backs on their covenant-keeping redeemer. You remember that in the New Testament, Jesus himself said that it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause one of his little ones to turn in paths of unrighteousness. Well, Numbers 31 is something like the millstone I think he had in mind. You remember, I trust, the, the sin that led to this vengeance being poured out in the first place. Verse 16 of our chapter, uh, Moses reminds us of the plot that was set up by Balaam, the son of Beor. How the men of Midian consulted with him and how the men of Midian incited the women of Midian to seduce the men of Israel into idolatrous debauchery. And they did it as a calculated move. It wasn't just about going out and having a little fling. That It was spiritual treason. It was a plot through the desires of the flesh to attempt to get Israel to turn away from God so that he would curse his people for them. Because you remember, Balaam was not able to curse the people for himself. But maybe, if they can turn God's people away from God, they can get God to do their business. And actually, he did. So you remember that when it happened, when, when the men of Israel went away into this idolatrous debauchery, the judgment of God fell upon his own nation first. There's another New Testament truth about the judgment of God. That is that it begins with the household of God. Here's how Paul said it in Romans. He said, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And when the idolatry of the Baal of Peor occurred, the Lord sent tribulation and distress among his own nation. 24,000 of them died in a single day. That is, by the way, exactly twice the number of the fighting force that he sent out. The plague fell upon his own people. The Lord sent a judgment that was only checked by the zeal of Phineas. This priest who drove a spear through the sin that nobody else was willing to punish. And in his judgment, the justice of the Lord was satisfied. Well, now in chapter 31, it's time to turn the sharp end of God's judgment against the Midianites. So they send out this united representation, 1,000 from each of the warring tribes, 12,000 men, zealous Phineas at their head. And verse 7 says, they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed every male. More than that. They killed every male. They killed all their kings and commanders. They burned all of their encampments in their villages. They took everyone and everything that they could take as plunder, and they returned to the people along the banks of the Jordan River. And yet, when Moses went out to meet the men, we find that despite their violence, despite their bloodshed, the men who went to war for Israel still have not taken seriously enough the issue of God's judgment. I suppose they expected Moses to be happy with them. I suppose they might have been happy with themselves. Militarily speaking, it was an unmitigated success. 
a wonderful excursion. 12,000 men came out and 12,000 men came back and the enemy was completely vanquished. And here they are with all the spoils of war for the whole nation to share. Surely they had fulfilled all that the Lord had commanded them, hadn't they? Except they had not. They had not because they let the women and the children live. They held back from executing the full judgment of God. They contented themselves with something lesser, something lighter. We could probably think of a few reasons why they would let the survivors survive, can't we? For feeling critical, we can probably come up with some selfish or some sinful reasons. I mean, if the incident of, of Peor is anything to go by, the women of Midian were attractive. They were alluring, exotic maybe, and so they let the children live to become slaves. They took the women back to become concubines because after all, to the victors go the spoils, don't they? So maybe they had their own motivations, or maybe, then again, it could be that, that they were trying to do the same thing that readers of texts like this are still trying to do today when they encounter God's judgment. That is that they're trying to get God off the hook. They're trying to save God from the full implications of real and full justice. That's the way that some people handle these accounts. They read about holy warfare in the Bible and they do exegetical acrobatics. Trying to say, well, well no, it, it wasn't that. It was this other thing. No, it was, it was this lesser thing. No, no, God wouldn't have told his people to do that. They do all of these acrobatics trying to get God off the hook because they're embarrassed by a God who has a right to call sinners to account. Maybe that's what the army was trying to do. Maybe they couldn't stomach the idea of bringing the judgment upon the entire nation. They could, they could handle judging the men, but, but there has to be a line somewhere, right? There has to be a limit on how far God wanted them to go. So, so perhaps they let them live for their own reasons. Perhaps they were trying to be more merciful than God himself, but whatever was the reason, they were in the wrong. So verse 14 says that Moses went out to meet them and Moses was angry. He was angry because they approached this as any other human conflict. Not as a matter of God's justice. They approached it as though it was a squabble over land or, or possessions. Not as though God was using them to, to bring judgment upon the sinner. Matthew Henry says there's a difference between those two between warfare and judgment. Matthew Henry says, the sword of war should spare women and children. But the sword of justice should know no distinction but that of guilty or not guilty. And Moses points out that in this instance, the women were just as guilty as the men. And so was the women themselves who had to bear the weight of their sin. And through them, their children also. And so the command is given to, to kill all of the male children, all the future soldiers of Midian, along with all the women who were old enough to have been initiated by now, to have taken part in this pagan fertility cult that they had among the Midianites. All of them are killed, and the girls are kept alive. By the mercy of God, they're brought into the protection and the peace of the covenant community. 
They were cleansed, you notice. Along with the rest of the spoil, along with the soldiers themselves, they were cleansed. And then they were brought in. And then they became as a treasure belonging to God's people. They became as brands plucked from the fires of iniquity. And we read those things and somebody says, how on earth can you justify a God who allows his people or commands his people to do something like that? How can you justify a God who does those things? And the answer is, we don't. We do not. We do not justify the justice of God. I do not spend a single second of my time trying to fit the righteousness of God into my tiny little box so that I can feel as though the Almighty over the universe plays safe with me or with you. So that we think that he obeys the finite rules of engagement that we set up. We do not justify God and neither should you. Because the God of justice justifies himself. God's judgment is self-evidently righteous. How so? Well, he's the God in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the one from whom comes life and breath, every possession we have. He is the one who has numbered all of our days before there were any of them. And he is the one who decides, each one of us, whether it's on a battlefield or in a hospital bed, he is the one who decides when we will breathe our final breath and stand before his perfect judgment. And your job is not to rationalize it or to domesticate it. Your job is to accept it and believe it. And the very hard truth that we have to believe in Numbers chapter 31 is that the judgment of God will bring an end to all sin's rebellion. In the days of Israel, it showed up in time and space. That's, that's the difference, you understand. There's a time under the old covenant when God was working with a localized, geographic, physical kingdom, there is no such localized, geographic, physical kingdom anymore. With the direct word of God leading them, the direct revelation and miracles and signs leading his people, and so there is no nation constituted today, not modern Israel, not modern America, no nation on earth that can say, we are going to war to completely eradicate another people, and by the way, we're doing it as the judgment of God. We do not have that justification, but they did. And in the days of Israel, it showed up in warfare. It showed up in slaughter. It showed up in the death for the sinner. And one New Testament scholar, Roy Gaines, says that in Numbers chapter 31, the ethical principles of the final judgment were intruding into the sphere of human history. It means it was a glimpse of things yet to come. A very small symbol of a much greater judgment. Because the reality is that one day God's judgment will be greater than it ever could have been through the hands and the weapons of national Israel. The Bible tells us that one day the judgment of God is going to fall not just on one sinner, not just on one class of sinner, not even on one nation, one demographic, one contingent. The day is coming when the justice of God will come for everyone. Jew and Gentile, 
slave and free, man and woman, and boy and girl. Paul says the Lord has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It means a perfect standard applied to everyone. He will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus says the same thing. He said that when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, says Jesus in Matthew 25. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will apply his standard of judgment to all nations and to all people. That's a day that is coming. And in Numbers chapter 31, that judgment broke in to where the people of God could see it. Here's the first truth that we find in this passage. It really is the main point of the whole thing. It is that the judgment of God will make a full end of sin's rebellion. Now, although it may be hard to see, there is mercy to be found here as well. And this is our second point, second of two. It is the mercy of God. So, so when Moses and the other leaders went out to meet the army of Israel, there were at least two surprises Two things that we don't expect. The first is Moses' anger. When they've been more merciful than they should have been, when they let the women and the children live. The first surprise is Moses' anger. The second surprise was in the fact that all the soldiers were counted as ceremonially unclean. Did you notice that? They had just come back from accomplishing the work of God doing this service that the Lord had sent them out to do. And that's not the way that we expect it to happen. They were on a mission from God. They were the sword of the Lord for righteousness against sinners. And we expect them to be greeted like like champions, like holy men returning from a pilgrimage. And instead, they're kept outside the camp like lepers. This is not the way that the false religions of the world handle this sort of thing, you know. How is it that the false religions of the world encourage their followers to become suicide bombers? It is by promising them wonderful and very holy things. They say, if you give your life for the sake of this creed, then you will open a door immediately to an unimaginable paradise. If you engage in holy warfare, you become a holy person. Your service for your God or your so-called gods becomes a sanctifying thing on your life. That's how the false religions handle it. Unfortunately and sadly, that's the same message that sent Christian soldiers into the Crusades in the 11th century. In 1095, at the Council of Clermont, the Pope of Rome convinced the armies of Europe that had been fighting with one another to turn instead their swords to fight for Jerusalem. He declared that this was the will of God that became the rallying cry of the Crusades. God wills it. You must do this. This is God's judgment. And in case anybody was was holding back, in case they were unsure, the Council of Claremont declared that for everyone who would take up arms to go into the Crusades, they would be granted a plenary indulgence. 
That isn't the acts and the, the gifts of penance that you would normally have to give to the church to cover the forgiveness of your sins. Those would be wiped clean, you see. They taught that the military service had a sanctifying effect, that holy warfare made the sinner clean in the eyes of God, or at least on the record of the church. Well, the sad reality is that it's easy to manipulate people with empty spiritual promises. You just have to know the right levers to pull. But you notice that in this passage, God doesn't give a false hope that somehow military service has made these men acceptable. He doesn't allow them to think that they've become more sanctified because they've been engaged in warfare. Quite the opposite. They return from the fields of battle and they're told that they must remain outside the camp until they were cleansed from the uncleanness of death. Verse 19. And camp outside the camp seven days, and whoever of you has killed any person, and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. The rest of that section in the middle goes on to talk about the things that can pass through fire, things that can't pass through fire, but all of it, metal or, or, or wood or, or people themselves, all of it had to pass through the waters of uncleanness. You could go back to Numbers chapter 19. You could find the details there all over again. The way that the red heifer was to be led outside the camp and completely consumed by fire. The way that the ashes would be gathered up by a priest and kept in a special place so that they could be added to water and sprinkled on anyone who was ceremonially unclean. And the point of bringing all of that back all the way here in Numbers chapter 31 in this context is to remind these triumphal warriors that God has not changed his program for forgiveness. They are not brought near to God because of their victory. Their violence and their bloodshed is not a bargaining chip with the Creator. And so even the warriors in God's holy war are reminded that the only way anyone comes near to the Lord is through the sacrifice that he has provided. After all, what was the difference between these two nations? What was the dividing line between the idolatry that brought a, brought a plague upon Israel and the idolatry that brought the sword against Midian? Was it not the mercy of the Lord extended graciously where it did not deserve to be extended? Isn't the difference the intercession of men that God had provided, men like Moses and Aaron? Is not the difference that the, that the sacrificial offerings that the Lord has determined to accept as a covering for sin, is not the difference the forward-looking faith? It was pointing all along to the sacrifice of Jesus who gave himself to purify his bride, the church. So it's true that the people of Israel came back victorious, but they also came back unclean. And they came back unclean so that they would remember that no one can approach the Lord except through his mercy. Same is true today, you know. After all, what, what's the difference between the people gathered together inside of God's church and all the unbelievers outside? What's the difference between your sin and your unbelief and the sin and the unbelief of your neighbor who checks her horoscopes every morning and, and meditates over crystals and goes to Reiki healers? 
What's the difference between your unbelief and their unbelief? Isn't it simply that your sin has been dealt with? That your unbelief has been covered? That your impurity has been cleansed through Jesus Christ? Is not the difference that the Lord has provided a mediator to pray for you? That he's provided a sacrifice to cleanse you? Is not the difference that the Lord himself has sovereignly provided a way to come near to his all-merciful grace? So here's where we find mercy in this passage. It's a reminder that none of us comes near to the Lord through our service. We sometimes think about it that way, don't we? We come to the table, and there's this little voice in the back of our head, and we say, have I done well enough this week? Here's a welcome, and here's a meal, and here's something that I'm called to share in together with God's people, but have I done well enough to come to the table this week? Now, maybe I'll wait. Maybe I'll wait until next week. Maybe I'll work harder. Maybe I'll serve the Lord. Maybe I'll put to death the deeds of the flesh. Maybe I'll go to war against all of that iniquity in my life. Maybe next time I can come after I've cleaned myself up a little bit. But the table of the Lord says, no, there's a sacrifice that cleanses the unclean. There's a priest who intercedes for the ungodly. There's a Savior who draws near those who don't deserve to come on their own. Now, it's the same message that we find near the close of this passage. After the spoils of war have been divided, and after the Lord has claimed his portion for the priests, the commanders of the army bring this second offering. You notice it in verse 49. The officers come near to Moses. They say, your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command, and there is not a man missing from us. Can you imagine? Not a man missing from us. And so they say, we have brought the Lord's offering. What each man found, articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, beads, we've brought it to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. Now, of course, the first thing we notice is what an incredible victory this is. Absolutely miraculous. By the power of God. We have no idea how many men they were up against. We don't know if they fought on the plains. We don't know if it was guerrilla-style warfare. In fact, the passage gives us very few details about the warfare, except that it does tell us the outcome. And the outcome is that every single one of Israel's soldiers came back. Not a single one was missing. It was a significant victory. More than that, it was a change of fortunes from an earlier generation. You remember... Numbers chapter 14, they stood beside a different border along the land of Canaan, and they said, we will not go in. In fact, we're going to go back, because if we go in, we are going to be consumed. And our wives and our children will become prey for the inhabitants of the land. That's what they said. Our wives and our children will become prey. And now the Lord has reversed the fortunes. And the opposite has happened. And the Lord sent out this representative thousand from every tribe, and when the battle is over, every single one of them came home to their families. And when they took this head count, they realized God's blessing. And the next thing they did was to turn to him in overflowing gratitude. So verse 50 says that the offering was to make atonement, it says, to make atonement for the lives of the men. 
could use another biblical phrase for that. We could say that they paid a ransom payment. Not an attempt to purchase God's favor, but rather an acknowledgement that they already had it, that the Lord was already with them. An acknowledgement that all their lives already belonged to the Lord. Their gift was a way of declaring that it's only by His strength and His mercy that they were victorious. And we know that because the payment that they brought was far larger than the normal atonement price that the Lord set on the lives of His people. Go back again, maybe this afternoon in Exodus, you can see that the Lord set a price for atonement on each head. And that price was one half shekel. Normally, one half shekel of silver, actually. And Exodus chapter 30, verse 15, says the price was fixed. Exodus 30, verse 15, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. And I'll spare you doing the math in Numbers chapter 31, but they brought back almost enough to make atonement for three times the number of men who came back from the battle. What does all of that mean? Well, it means that when they returned alive from the judgment, that they had seen with their own eyes and, and executed with their own hands, when they returned alive from the judgment of God, they recognized that His mercy was upon them. They recognized that they had been spared, even though they probably didn't deserve to be spared. They knew it was not their skill. They knew it was not their strength or their holiness that brought them through it. They knew that it was the power and protection of God. And so they poured out their hearts in gratitude to the Lord for His goodness. And then they took that offering into the tabernacle and it, it just stayed there. It just stayed there. Who saw it? Well, maybe a priest every once in a while. Who saw it? The Lord saw it. A memorial before the Lord. A signpost pointing to His mercy. Not that the Lord would forget, you understand, but so that the Lord would remember. That's the language the Scripture often uses, to bring to memory. Although God doesn't forget His people, yet He, yet he sometimes remembers them. He had not forgotten them when they were in Egypt, and yet it says that He, he remembered His covenant. That means he brought it to bear all over again. So this memorial was placed before the Lord, not so that he wouldn't forget, but so that he would remember. I hope by now that my preaching is predictable enough that you already know where we're going at the end. And that is to ask you the question, what is the ransom payment that the Lord has fixed for your eternal soul, dear believer? What is the cost of atonement for you? It's more than a half shekel, I'll tell you that. It's more than many shekels. It's more than all the riches you can amass in this life. The New Testament tells us that if somehow we should be able to gather for ourselves all the riches of this life and lose our soul in the process, we would come out the poorer on the other side of that transaction. The redemption price of the eternal soul of a sinner is nothing less than the life and blood of the eternal Son of God incarnate. And this is what the Lord has provided for us. This is the price the Lord has paid to assure us 
that his mercy is great enough to deliver us from the justice of judgment so that on the day that we stand before the Lord, he will not forget, but he will remember. He'll see and he'll look upon the price of Jesus Christ, his riches and glory and mercy poured out for us and make atonement and cover us. You know, Paul said that there's a day the Lord has fixed in which he will judge the world in righteousness. One standard applied to all people. Yeah, he goes on, he says, the Lord will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he said, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What that means is that there is a warrior who has already fought the battle with God's judgment in our place. There is one who could stand to have God's perfect standard of righteousness applied to him and live to tell the tale. And for all those who trust in him, he applies his mercy where God's judgment ought to fall upon us. That's what we find at this table as we come wondering about our service and about how well we've done this week and about how consecrated we are and are we holy enough and have we struggled hard enough against the sin in our lives, this table proclaims to us that the price has been paid, that the door is open and the table is set for fellowship with the Father. It's true that we might be offended to realize that the God of the Bible is also a God of judgment. But I tell you that if we ignore his judgment, we will never realize how wide his mercy really is. By God's mercy, there's a Savior who's able to cover you. By God's mercy, there's a sacrifice that can make you clean. By God's mercy, there is no judgment that can stand against us if we trust in the Son that he has sent. Let's come together with the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O gracious God and Father, we thank you for the full cup of wrath and indignation poured out upon your Son in our place. We thank you that he drank it to the dregs and was laid in the grave and was raised again to give life and immortality to all those who trust in you. Lord, not only that we should live forever, but that we would live and see you and be made like you as you are. We thank you for the promises of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the table that reminds us that through him we are welcome and we are cleansed and we are brought near to your mercy. Help us to rejoice and to receive by faith these promises you have for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.